You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 85, Dorchester Heights. When we last left the Siege of Boston at Cambridge at the end of January 1776, Colonel Henry Knox had successfully returned with cannon from Fort Ticonderoga. But Washington and his generals still did not have a clear plan in place for how to use them. For many months, General Washington had been arguing for a direct assault on Boston. The plan he proposed several times was to have the army row across Boston Harbor in small boats, conduct a water landing in the face of enemy fire, and then assault the town. His generals convinced him that this would be suicide. Even if the soldiers did not break and run in the face of deadly artillery from the British Army and Navy, they would be cut to pieces before they could reach shore. Even if they somehow reached the shore and surprised the enemy, an urban combat battle much like Quebec, but on a larger scale, would almost certainly result in the capture or massacre of the Continentals. On February 13, 1776, the British launched an evening raid across the ice, attacking Dorchester Neck. Colonel Alexander Leslie led several hundred British regulars on the raid that burned a few houses and captured a few unlucky sentries, then retreated back to Boston before the Continentals could react. This raised the concern that it was a prelude to a full British assault on Dorchester Heights. A few days later, on February 16th, General Washington held another council of war with his top generals. With Boston Harbor frozen over, he proposed to march the army across the ice in a direct assault on Boston. Again, all of his generals resisted such a battle, arguing that it would be suicide. Washington, who was usually pretty calm and restrained in any situation, was clearly frustrated that he could not convince his generals to engage in any sort of attack. Over these same months, General Artemis Ward, the Army's second-in-command, had argued that the best strategy would be to occupy Dorchester Heights. This was high ground consisting of two hills on a peninsula just south of Boston. Placing artillery on the heights would give the Continental Army the ability to bombard the Army in Boston as well as the Navy in the harbor. While doing so, they would be at an elevation that the British would not be able to return fire effectively. It would force the British to come out of Boston, either over the heavily fortified neck, or conduct a water landing, and then retake the heights by force. Even if they could take the heights, it would almost certainly be at a terrible cost, making the Battle of Bunker Hill look small in comparison. The charge up the hill would not just be against militia with muskets, the British would face a line of continental cannon. 
The British had considered trying to capture the Heights in the summer of 1775. It was the planned assault to take Dorchester that motivated the Patriots to occupy Bunker and Breed's Hill to the north and provoke that battle instead. After the losses at Bunker Hill, General Gage, and following his departure General Howe, did not want to risk another horrific loss by trying to do the same at Dorchester Heights. Instead, they used threats to intimidate the Continentals from occupying it, leaving it as a valuable no-man's land for months. With spring approaching, though, now with a pile of heavy cannon to mount on the heights, the Continental generals agreed that it was finally time to occupy Dorchester Heights. Washington approved the plan to occupy Dorchester, but with a bit of a twist. If the British moved out of Boston to attack Dorchester from the south, Washington wanted to use that distraction to have his army row across the harbor from the north, sending his army directly into the north side of Boston. The Council of War generally agreed to this plan. The one strong dissenter was General William Heath, who still thought that even if Howe sent half his army to attack Dorchester, there would still be thousands of entrenched British infantry and hundreds of army and navy cannon blasting away at the militia trying to row across a mile and a half of open water to attack the city. Heath was sure that such an assault would be a disaster and a bloodbath. But everyone seemed to think they had to do something, and this was the best plan that drew a consensus. The first step would be occupying Dorchester Heights. The problem was how to do it. Mounting cannon on heights could take weeks or even months especially with the ground frozen solid. There was no easy way to dig entrenchments without the enemy seeing what they were doing and sending out an army to take the heights before the Continentals were ready to defend it. To tackle this problem, General Heath reached out to Rufus Putnam, a Massachusetts native and a cousin of General Israel Putnam. Rufus Putnam had worked with British engineers during the French and Indian War but he was not what you would call an expert in the science of military engineering. After meeting with General Washington to discuss the plan, Putnam stopped by the home of General Heath, who, as you may recall, lived just south of Boston, near Dorchester Heights. While visiting Heath, Putnam noticed a book on the table by a British military engineer called Attack and Defense of Fortified Places. Putnam asked if he could borrow the book but Heath refused, saying he never lent out any books. To this, Putnam pointed out that Heath had stuck him with this job despite his lack of knowing anything about military engineering. Now he had to build a fortification, and Heath had the only book around that might explain how to do it. Really? You're not going to let me read it? Finally, Heath did agree and let Putnam borrow the book. A few pages in, Putnam saw the solution to his problem. His men could not dig entrenchments in the frozen soil. To get around this problem, the book suggested building chandeliers. In terms of 18th century military engineering, a chandelier was a wooden frame. Once built, the defenders filled the frame with sticks and branches and then covered the whole thing with dirt. This created a defensive wall that would stop most bullets. The soldiers could pre-build the chandeliers, then carry them up to Dorchester Heights at night, fill them with sticks and dirt, and then mount the cannons. 
With enough men, they could build a credible defensive wall and mount the cannon in a matter of hours. Putnam took the plan to Washington, who also conferred with Colonel Knox. Of course, Knox would be the man commanding the artillery once it was mounted there. Washington also conferred with Colonel Richard Gridley, still the Continental Army's chief engineer. All agreed that it was a sound plan and supported it. The only added suggestion was to add barrels filled with dirt or rocks as part of the defenses. In addition to providing cover, if the British tried to storm the hill, they could roll the barrels down the hill on top of them, killing some and breaking up the attacking British lines. Now, even though they had a good plan, this would not be easy to execute. The first step was to put hundreds of men to work building the wooden frames. They also set to work building 45 flat-bottom boats, which could carry 80 men each. Washington planned to use these for the assault on Boston. With all this work, the British would certainly know the Continentals were up to something. Also, the chandeliers would have to be carried across Dorchester Neck in plain view of the enemy. If the British realized the Continentals were planning to occupy Dorchester Heights, they could rush out and storm the heights before the defenders were ready. To avoid this problem, the Continentals set up large hay bales to block the road from view in Boston. To cover the sound, they planned to start a cannonade against Boston from other locations. They hoped this would distract the regulars and prevent them from hearing the sounds of hundreds of carts hauling equipment and guns up to the heights. General Ward took charge of building the chandeliers and other prefabricated defenses that would be carried up the heights. Washington invited Colonel Thomas Mifflin, who was at this time Quartermaster General, to assist with logistics. Mifflin proposed the night of March 4th for the occupation. That way, if the British attacked the following day, it would be the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. Others, though, thought this date was a mistake. It's not clear exactly why, but possibly because it was a full moon, making it easier for the British to spot the work. In any event, the council decided to adopt that date by a single vote. Colonel Knox decided to start using his artillery against Boston on the night of March 2nd. His plan was to continue the bombardment over the next two nights, so that by the night of March 4th, the British would be focused on the artillery, but not find it so unusual that they would suspect it was being used to cover the sounds of thousands of infantrymen occupying Dorchester Heights and installing chandeliers and mounting the cannon. The Continentals still did not have much gunpowder, meaning they would have to be careful in how much they used their cannon. The British Navy at New York had been blockading the harbor, but they cut a deal in New York allowing merchant vessels to enter there in exchange for New York providing the Royal Navy with fresh food to feed the sailors. Taking advantage of this ability to bring things into New York Harbor, the Patriots were able to smuggle in 3,000 pounds of gunpowder on February 29th. They hauled this powder overland on wagons up to Washington's army just in time for use in this action. But even that amount of powder would not last long with artillery. Since the first night was mostly about rousing the enemy, they only fired a total of around two dozen shots into Boston. Sadly, the Patriots did more to harm themselves than the enemy. Knox's inexperienced artillerymen destroyed three of their own mortars and one cannon through improper use. 
a British officer in Boston noted no significant damage to anything. Of course, the barrage triggered a response from the British, who used their own artillery to bombard the Continental camps for several hours. The next night, March 3rd, Knox's artillery once again fired on Boston. At least this time they did not damage any of their own weapons, and once again the British responded. When the Continentals opened up again on the third night, March 4th, the British again returned fire, but did not suspect anything else would be different that night. The night of March 4th to begin the installation turned out to be an exceptional choice. It would not be the last time that an unusual weather occurrence would help the Patriots. On this night, a bright moon helped the Patriots with their labors in getting the defenses in place on Dorchester Heights. But the bright moon did not help the British detect them, as a haze fell over the water, preventing the regulars from seeing much of anything across the water. Colonel Mifflin arranged for 350 ox carts to pull all the equipment up the heights beginning shortly after sundown. They next sent 800 soldiers to occupy the heights, just to sit there with muskets and watch for any attack from the regulars in Boston. Half of them sat near the shore, watching for an attack from Castle Island. The other half watched for an attack from Boston Neck. Washington gave the task of emplacing all the artillery and entrenchments to General John Thomas, who organized 1,200 more troops to do the work. Washington himself appeared on the heights to encourage the men and see that everything went according to plan. Colonels Knox and Gridley also worked on the site, making sure everything was installed where it was planned. But remember, occupying the heights was only half of Washington's plan. Washington fully expected the British to discover the occupation, either that night or certainly by morning, and that they would then scramble to launch an offensive force out of Boston to take the heights. As soon as they did that, Washington had prepared 4,000 soldiers under the command of General Israel Putnam, ready to launch two raiding parties, one under the command of General Greene and another under General Sullivan. These men would row across Boston Harbor, land on the north side of town, fight their way through the city, and link up with the soldiers on the south side, commanded by General Ward at Roxbury. All of these forces stood ready to go north of Boston, just waiting for a signal that the regulars moved to attack Dorchester Heights. The plan at Dorchester Heights seemed to move along with no significant problems. By 10 p.m., they had established two forts on the heights and continued with the installation of chandeliers along the line. Several hours before dawn, everything was in place and ready to go. In total, if you count the guards, the men moving the fortifications, and those hauling the material to the site, there were a little over 3,000 men involved. Now you may remember during the Battle of Bunker Hill that no one made an attempt to relieve the men who built the entrenchments overnight, nor did they set up any supply lines to bring them food and ammunition. The Continentals were not going to make the same mistake at Dorchester. In the morning, 3,000 fresh troops came up to replace the men who had spent all night building defenses. But it turned out the men who did the digging did not want to let the next shift get all the glory of going to battle. So most of the night shifts stayed on the heights as well, leading to probably somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 defenders. 
By morning, the Continental Army was fully embedded on the heights with all the infantry and artillery they needed to repulse any assault. Now, inside Boston, General Howe had received intelligence from deserters that the Continentals were planning to do something on Dorchester, but he did not know the date or other details. Rather than act proactively, Howe waited until they actually did something. He would then assault the heights where they were building the defenses. During that night, while the Continentals secretly built the defenses, at least one officer in Boston detected activity and reported to his superior that the rebels were occupying the heights. That superior was General Francis Smith, the same man who led the original expedition to Lexington the previous April. Now, General Smith had always been a follow-orders kind of officer, who did not really grab the initiative or act with great energy. In this case, he decided he would take up the matter with General Howe in the morning. When dawn broke, the regulars were shocked to see not one, but two fully built forts and a line of entrenchments complete with cannon built on the top of Dorchester Heights. According to one account, Howe said it would have taken his army months to complete such an emplacement. Howe's chief engineer estimated that it must have taken 15 to 20,000 men to build those works overnight. The British immediately turned their artillery fire on the new defenses, but found that they were too high for them to hit effectively, either from Boston or from the ships in the harbor. At the same time, the Continentals could lob shots into the city or at naval vessels in the harbor unopposed. Despite the entrenchments being pretty well in place, General Howe launched a contingent of soldiers that morning to push the Continentals off Dorchester Heights. British General Valentine Jones loaded a force of just over 1,200 men into boats to take them over to the Dorchester Peninsula. They planned to attempt a water landing in the face of cannon, musket, and rifle fire, then form up and charge the hills, defended by as many as 6,000 patriots. To put this in context, the British would have only a fraction of the number of attackers they had used at Bunker Hill, and they would be facing a line with many more cannon and far greater defenders. This really seemed like a suicide mission. Fortunately for the British attackers, the weather once again intervened. High winds kicked up and prevented the force from being able to land before high tide that morning. Once the tide started coming out, it would be even harder to effect a landing. So they got the force to Castle Island and planned a nighttime attack during the next high tide, just after midnight. But before they could do that, the storm kicked up again even worse that night, with hurricane force winds preventing any landing. The following day, wind and rain continued, making a landing still nearly impossible. Howe convened a council of war, at which just about every officer argued against an attack. The rebels had had another 24 hours to make their defenses even stronger, and there was no realistic way they were going to take the heights. Although Howe had received reinforcements all winter, he was also losing men at a fair clip due to smallpox and other diseases. You will recall he had also allowed General Clinton to leave with some of his regulars to go conquer the Carolinas. So General Howe had maybe 6,000 men total that were ready for duty. Even if he sent all of them against Dorchester, 
it probably would have been impossible to dislodge an entrenched enemy. At the same time, an all-out attack would encourage Washington to launch his invasion of Boston from the north side of the harbor. There was just no way for Howe to win this one. A frustrated General Howe agreed with his council of war that an attack would never work. He admitted to them that he only planned to order the attack for the honor of the army. Now accepting that the plan was a pointless waste of lives in a no-win situation, Howe called off the attack completely. Now this may have been a good thing for the Continentals too. If Howe had launched his attack against Dorchester, Washington probably would have launched his ill-conceived amphibious attack against the north of Boston. In that situation, the regulars almost certainly would have cut down those 4,000 men that were crossing the harbor, leading to a terrible defeat for Washington. It might have even led to his dismissal as commander-in-chief. But none of that happened, though. When Howe called off his attack, Washington called off his as well. No attack, though, meant Howe was stuck in a situation where the rebels could fire on the army and navy at will without the British being able to return fire effectively. Now, well before all this happened, Howe had already determined that the army should evacuate Boston and move to New York as the center of operations. Howe had hoped to make that move in a few more months later in the spring and after more reinforcements had arrived from Britain. Now he would have to move up that timetable. He would also have to evacuate under the embarrassment of an amateur rebel army having outmaneuvered him and forcing his retreat. Next week, the British Army evacuates Boston. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining me again for another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get into that, I want to let everyone know that you can now access the American Revolution podcast on Siri. If you ask Siri to play the American Revolution podcast, it will play the most current episode. You can also ask it to play a specific episode, although when I was testing that, it didn't always quite get it right. It's just another convenient way to access the podcast, so if you like Siri, you may want to give it a try. You can also listen to the podcast on Alexa. That's been around for quite a few months now. One thing that Siri can do that Alexa can't is allow you to subscribe to the podcast. Subscribing, of course, is completely free. It just means that your podcast app will automatically download the latest episode for you each week 
so it is ready to go when you want it. Of course, you can subscribe for free on just about any app you like. I'm a big fan of the Podbean app or CastBox. I'm not particularly a fan of Stitcher, since it often adds its own advertising to the end of my podcasts. The podcast is, of course, available on Stitcher, but I recommend using an app that doesn't annoy you with ads. That said, I think the podcast is available on just about any app you can think of, so pick whichever one you like. So this week's episode involved the fortification of Dorchester Heights. Now this has got to be the most important bloodless military event of the war. It forces General Howe to evacuate his army from Boston and flee to Canada. And it of course was seen as a great victory for the Patriots. And yet I can't help but think that if Howe had made even a half-hearted attack on the Heights, Washington probably would have launched his amphibious attack on North Boston. This could have resulted in thousands of Continental casualties. Something that seems to be the case in many occasions during the war, weather saved the Continentals. Bad weather prevented Howe from attempting an attack, which in turn prevented Washington from launching his poorly conceived amphibious attack. Years later, Napoleon Bonaparte was attributed with saying that it was better to have a lucky general than a good one. It's not clear whether he actually said it, but the sentiment definitely applies to Washington. More than once, the general made some extremely high-risk moves, only to be rescued from disaster by a lucky weather fluke or the stupidity of his opponent. I have the greatest respect for Washington's courage and character, but his luck seems to have been a key to his success on many occasions. So, Dorchester Heights is a great success and leads to the British evacuation that I'll cover next week. After that, the war shifts away from New England, and we begin a whole new chapter of the war. The year 1776 becomes transformational, not only because it brings independence, but because it allows Washington and his other generals to go from being lucky amateurs to experienced professionals in the art of war. It makes the year an absolutely critical period for the Revolution, and it also gives me the opportunity to recommend one of my favorite books about this part of the war. It's called 1776 Year of Illusions by Thomas Fleming. I read this book as a teenager, loved it then, and love it now. The book was first published in 1975 and is almost 500 pages, not counting notes and index. As the title suggests, it covers the events of 1776, starting with the assault of Quebec and ending with the attack on Trenton. The premise of the book is that the year convinces both sides that the war will become a long, hard slog doing away with their illusions at the beginning of the war. Americans had to give up idealism for professionalism in war. The British came to understand that the Americans were a force to be reckoned with and that they should not underestimate them. The author, Thomas Fleming, was a professional writer who produced dozens of books, most about the American Revolution. His work spans over 50 years from his first work in 1963 to his final book in 2017, which hit the shelves several months after his death in July. I've enjoyed many of Fleming's books, but 1776 and its focus on the pivotal year of the Revolution is one of my favorites. 
if you want to better understand the changes in the Patriots' mindset during that year, you should read this book. That's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.